There are two interesting musicians in this episode, Prince, who come to find out was kind of a control freak of a guest, and Dolly Parton, who shows us all how well she knows her worth. Stay tuned. From the east coast of these United States, as far from Melrose Avenue as two people can be without falling into the Atlantic Ocean, this is Growing Up in the Dog Pound, props to Arsenio Hall, with Jamie and Natalie. And just like that, we travel back in time to Boston College, 1988 to 1992. So we've reached the end of our podcast journey, Natalie. We have. And it's been fun. It's been really fun. You know, you learn through people. You know, you learn through their mistakes, their triumphs, you know, and it makes. And actually, I thought about certain people a, a different way. You know, I had never considered certain perspectives, I would say. So it's been good. Yeah, you learn through people. And I was thinking last night of, you know, we're wrapping up the podcast and what was it like to wrap up our college career? And I thought of one person that I learned through. I'm going to disguise this person a little more than usual because I don't think she would want this story to be out in the world. But we had a friend when we were graduating who, in her mind anyway, was close to not graduating. I don't know if you remember this story. I do. This friend. I do. Yeah. This friend, let's call her Rhonda, was at the time we thought a procrastinator. In other words, frequently turned in papers late really was very smart. We had no doubt of that, but probably, I don't know for sure, but probably didn't achieve the greatest grades because much of her work was not on time. I would agree with that. Looking back, I almost wonder if it was more than procrastination, if there was an element of like self-sabotage in there. Hmm. I had never considered that with her. Um, yeah. I don't... It sort of seemed like she was maybe lacking a little self-confidence and in this area mm-hmm. and maybe didn't think she could succeed in the, in the in her heart of hearts and so made it that way subconsciously, but I don't know. You know what? Now that you've mentioned that, I, I've never really thought about it in this way, but I think there's a possibility and I, I don't disagree with you. I think that that's definitely an element there. I wonder if, because she was, when she was procrastinating, like when, whenever she took like, I don't know, five days to like, you know, a, a, an assignment would be like five days overdue and she's still like thinking about it and trying to make it good and explore like it wasn't just like that she was not interested in the subject matter she was very interested and very interested in really you know sort of getting the details right and I wonder if she like you said kind of like what you were saying about the self-sabotaging whether she was she didn't want to I'm wondering if she was like a perfectionist like if she she, if she could hand it in late then she could always sort of think you know oh who cares you know I got that grade you know I got a C because Because I was late late, so if I didn't get an A you know it's not because it was wasn't good enough. You know, it's it's a way of like sort of protecting yourself, I guess. So that may be the case. I don't know. I'm just an amateur psychologist. Mm -hmm. Same here. 
study anything. But um, the fact of the matter was that she had not submitted a final paper for a course. And the professor, oh, I'm going to give kudos to the professor in this case, actually called her and said, look, you know, without that paper, you're not going to pass the class. And probably the professor knew she was graduating and needed that credit. It's not like we had, none of us, as far as I know, had like extra credits to spare. We needed to pass whatever we were taking that final semester. And I wonder if that was like standard for most professors or if it was just like he, or it was a he, I think. Um, He, he I think so took, too. A, took, you know, was, was conscientious and, you know, cared about the fact that a student may not graduate, you know. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I give him credit for calling her up. Yeah, I think that was kind of a BC thing, like we've said before. Like, I, I think those professors really did care. And maybe he even knew this is not somebody who should fail. This right. is someone who has taken this seriously. And I, I bet you she was. I don't know what her deal is with the late stuff, but. Right. You know. And I bet you she was a great. I don't recall a lot of like whether she was a good participator in class, but I bet you she was, you know, because she was always so interested and she always was willing to share what she thought about things. You know, this was an insightful, smart young lady, you know, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah. And at the time we were just thinking it was comical, right? That yeah. you had a, a friend who we thought it was comical that we had a friend who was uh, late all the time and not um submitting things and and yet we knew that she was really pretty serious student yeah like she she went to class and wanted to be in her major and um you know would would remark on things that she had studied so it was not your typical lazy lazy kid who really wasn't involved mentally or intellectually in her studies. right and it's funny how back then as as young girls like i didn't i just thought she's smart she needs to just get it together. And that was the end of my, you know, perspective on it. Like now, as an older woman, I look back and say, there's something else here. You know, there's something else at play as as far as her not getting this work done. It's not just that she's procrastinating. Like we think of it in a, a right. more comprehensive, you know, deep manner now, like as whereas before we were because we were the same age as her. We were just like, can you just get it together just like we are? You know, just get it together. Just do it. You know? Yeah. So what I remember was that... um Graduation was upon us, and she had not submitted this paper, and the professor called and told her she needed to do that. And so now I think the class has ended. We're in this little limbo period in in between classes ending and graduation. Some of us have exams, and she probably had exams, plus now she had to rush complete this paper. And it occurred to her that she um, had a lot at stake. She had received a scholarship from, I'm not sure who, but it was somebody Boston based. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if she also got a call or if she just knew or if she suspected or what, but for some reason, I even remember the station. She was pretty convinced that Channel 4 News was going to come to our graduation to film her graduating <laughs> because she had received this scholarship. Right. And that's like for a young girl that I mean, now we, we just kind of laugh at it. And even now I just chuckled. I don't know why I chuckled. But it's like that's kind of like devastating. Like if you don't make it and you've got the news coming to your graduation and you're not going to make it, you know, it's I mean, that's like very high stress. You know, yeah, and not to mention her mom, who was kind of a um disciplinarian, I guess you'd say strict mom, would also have been at the graduation and devastated, and what she was imagining i don't I don't know if all this really was in place to um happen, but she was imagining her mom and the news at graduation and them not calling her name, right, like her being there in her cap and gown, and no diploma, but like I said. <laughs> 
is that a real prospect? But it was in her mind. And it was, I mean, it was a possibility if she didn't get her stuff together, you know? So definite. Well, so yeah, it was a possibility in our minds too. She was panicked and we were um, not really challenging that. However, I thought, okay, there's a few things going on here. First of all, I don't think she can complete this paper in this mindset. She's panicked and even if she completes it, there's in her mind, there's not going to be a guarantee that she passes the class because maybe the professor gives her a D on the paper right. and it's not enough, you know? I mean, that's the whole so, thing at that point. I don't remember like all of the specifics, but I, I know that it was going to be a good paper because she was, again, an intelligent person and she was a pretty good writer. So I, I'm thinking it's probably going to be, be a good paper. But when you wait so long, then it's like, I, I forget, wasn't there like a grade cutoff or something? <laughs> well, yeah. So this is the thing. So I'm observing that she's going to have a hard time writing this because she probably has exams plus this now problem. And I would find it very hard to concentrate under that kind of stress. So I also thought, you know, this can't be the first time that this has happened. And this could happen to anybody. You could be taking a challenging class. You take your final exam and you really don't know if you passed. Right. Right. So graduation's coming. Now what? You have to find out in front of everyone whether you pass. I thought that doesn't sound right. So in this story, I'm proud to say that I was the hero. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't I yes. don't remember. I just remember her being in some kind of crazy frenzy. And then I don't remember. Why were you the hero? Well, I was in a better place, I believe, because I think I only had two exams that were probably done. So I had the luxury of, you know, thinking this over. And I thought, this can't be the first time this has occurred. There must be a policy. So I called the registrar's office. And I said, you know, asking for a friend, and I'm sure they thought it was me, but I thought, I don't care. I need the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I said, let's, you know, hypothetically say that you don't know if you're going to pass one of the classes that you're taking that you need to graduate. Should that person show up to graduation? I mean, it would be humiliating for that person if they didn't call his or her name, right? Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> oh my God. I distinctly remember what the registrar said. They said, on the day of graduation, well, this part is not verbatim, but. But you remember, I mean, the impact was big because you were concerned enough to call, which was very sweet. Go- well, yeah. And I thought that this, this problem has a solution. We do not have to be worrying about this. So I called and I, and the registrar said, if, you know, the person is on track to graduate, there is no reason for concern because on the day of graduation, this part I remember verbatim, she said, everybody walks, meaning Everybody walks to the stage when their name is called, whether they technically graduate after the fact, get the diploma, blah, blah, blah. That is to be seen, but you will get uh, what appears to be a diploma and you walk across the stage. <laughs> At least you can. It's a great like cover up for somebody who's, a, you know, yes. going to fail maybe. Cause, but, but, but this is the thing. Did she, well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll, I'll let you continue in case you had one more thing to say about that. But I, I have a question because I can't remember. Just the um, the impact of everybody walks. I remember telling our friend Rhonda, hey, good news. Everybody <laughs> walks. <laughs> I, I kind of vaguely remember that. And and maybe I, you know, sometimes you because you, you, you 
at that time, what I knew of her, like she would have been sighing, going, thank God, you know, thank, yeah. you know, I, I remember feeling good that I could lift that little burden, like you write whatever you're going to write. Yeah, just work. And yeah. <laughs> it, it's not going to be awful if you fail. I don't think you are. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's lift that little stressor. right? Well, now. she was, you know, the her whole college career, she was always just skating by just a smart girl just skating the whole time, you know, and it was like unnecessary. Like she, she was, you know, completely capable of getting, you know, A's, B's or even straight A's, whatever. She was fully capable of doing it. But my question is this, because I don't recall, when did we know for sure that we were like really graduates? Like when did we get our grades? Like when did we know about this stuff? I believe that none of us really knew unless we were going, I thought about this too, if you were really concerned to see your grades come through, outside of calling your professor, the option that you had was to go to a little terminal in Lions Hall and insert your student ID. Okay. And it would display any grades that you had. So if, if you were taking four classes and two of the professors had put in the grades, you could see them Did there. we ever do that? <laughs> I don't know that we cared because we weren't, none of us, no, rest of us I know, but you were, were on think, the verge. You know? I, I think I was super relaxed back then because even now as like an older woman, if I took those courses, I'd be like, okay, I know I probably did okay, but I would like feel better if I went and checked my grades, but it didn't even occur to little Natalie to go check her grades, did it? <laughs> you don't well, recall me being stressed about it or anything? <laughs> Well, otherwise, if it wasn't graduation week, they then mailed you your grades at your home, right. your parents' home. Right. So you were going to get them. This was the only time it was like super time. But obviously I was much more relaxed because it was even now, like knowing like, oh, I probably did all right. I would still kind of want to know what my grades were. But that's, I guess, me now as an older woman back then. I was just like, I got this. I was not concerned. Well, <laughs> you're going to get the grades. Yeah. And you probably, I mean, you know... The final exam or the final paper or whatever it is, is not your whole grade most of the time. So you've had all semester to see how you're doing. It's not, you shouldn't just suddenly fail without knowing. Right, exactly. No, true, true. So she was able to get it done. Now I don't remember what her final grade was. I don't think I ever asked her that. We just know she passed. Yeah, I don't think it mattered. And but, but really nothing, nothing mattered after that moment because everybody walked. Everybody walked and we like, we were just acting like it was all good. Right. But I, I'd like to think that we had some assurance that she was okay, but I don't recall that I, part. I think that we did. I think that we did. Really? Um, but what, why, why would we think that? Like, we, did we have a grade? Did we, you know, did we get a, you know, some kind of indication from her professor? I don't recall. It could be that. Another thing that some professors did, which uh, thank God they don't do this today because it's kind of embarrassing. But I remember one time checking a professor's door outside their office. They would sometime post the final grade. Yeah, you don't want everybody to see what you got, right? I know. But very few people went and looked, so probably didn't matter. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't really recall that too much. And yeah, I wouldn't want people to know what I got for sure. <laughs> But it goes back to also no Internet. Like right. clearly today, the students are just checking whatever and it, whatever terminal we found in Lions Hall. They can just access the, online. Isn't that wonderful? Wow. I know. And also, well, they also take their exams on the computer, too. Right. I don't think that the blue books remember the little blue books. I don't think those exist. anymore. Oh, that's interesting, because one thing you don't want, though, is you don't really want them taking an exam in their dorm room because they could be looking up 
all the answers. So they probably still have to go somewhere and take. Yeah, the I think exam. they go to the class, and there might be computers there or something. Maybe, but they might still be reading little blue books. It's possible. Oh, those blue books were adorable. I would just keep writing and writing and writing everything that I learned. I would put down in that damn blue book. <laughs> yeah, they were kind of like panic-inducing. I know. At the same time, they were comforting. <laughs> they were comforting to me because I liked words. So if I felt like yep. I could write something down, I could save myself. You know what I mean? And I believe you could have more than one book if you wanted. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so. I remember filling more than one blue book. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and I was like, I liked anything that had to do with words. It, whenever it was math or calculus, that was like torture for me, man. That was like, I didn't want to eat. The problem was I had a block. I wasn't really that interested as a as an older woman now. Now I'm interested. Can we can we take the course now? But back then I just really wasn't, and that made it more difficult because it didn't come naturally to me. I had to work at it. Meaning math, math and, and, and calculus no, and trig. Type of yeah, not anything non-word. If it was words, <laughs> if it was art history and English and oh, all of that was just fine. Anything with words. Once we got into visuals and graphs and, oh, no, that just wasn't going to work. Although, I remember your art history exam, though, with the oh, yeah. Lion, Lion's Gate. <laughs> Even I know that. <laughs> I know. I was like, I was panicked then. But now as an older woman, I would be really happy to take an exam like that. Because, you know, I've traveled and Well, stuff. you were into the studying. Yeah. So for people who don't know that this exam was, I've never heard of an exam like this. Maybe it's because I didn't take art history. They were going to flash, probably using a slide projector, yes. images of famous artworks for the exam uh, in a presentation. And you had to immediately, like within two seconds or something, write down yes. what the write down work like of who art it was, was and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's all I had to do. If I remember that Lion's Gate was on the exam and I don't even know what it was, <laughs> you studied pretty hard. <laughs> to be honest, it, 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 I, I want to, I don't even know what you're referring to. Lion's Gate for, what, 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 on the BC campus or, or something else? No, no. I think it's a work of art. Let me look it up. An actual painting or a sculpture? I don't know that. I just remember you studying and saying, Lionsgate. <laughs> <laughs> I love, see, this is why I'm saying I learn new stuff through this podcast. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, here we go. I think I got it. And then I have to go check it out myself. Well, it's one of, one of the gates of the old city of Jerusalem. Could it have been that? Oh, wow. Okay. And you know, I want to go to Israel. And I, I actually was mm -hmm. looking into going this year, but the restrictions... Would that be something that would be in your art history class? Sure. I mean, I studied sculptures and all kinds of stuff. Okay. It wasn't just like paintings. It was ev like everything. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot, but I liked it. So I didn't mind, you know? That was like an elective. That wasn't like some, some, it was, well, I don't know if it was every, I can't remember. It was an elective though. Um, so anyway, so I'm glad that Rhonda got past that and that you, my, my dear friend, Jamie, always mature thinking about how to help your friend instead of just, you know, lottie dotting around like Natalie was. That was perfect. Cause I'm sure that to this day, I'm sure Rhonda remembers that you found that out for her. Everybody walks. Everybody walks. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Everybody walks. <laughs>
Because that, I mean, that's hard. I mean, you're, you know, especially in her mind, the news might come, my mom. Oh, my God. And imagine. Well, and I just thought that this is this can't be this. This is too common. The school does not benefit by having people's parents come in from far away. And then the kid doesn't get a diploma. That's that's not something that the school wants. Right. So and if there's a lot I of money involved and, and beyond money, there's a sense of pride. And, you know, there's a lot, of, lot at stake here. And, you know, plus disruptive. If you're like all in your cap and gown and nothing <laughs> happens, you're probably going to scream. <laughs> it's like, hello, they didn't call out my name. <laughs> Everybody walks. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, but I, I uh, that's a great story. Thank you for bringing it up. I hadn't. And Lionsgate. That's so funny. Uh, when I go to Israel, I have to I have to. I, I mean, that's part of the agenda. That's right. You need to take a picture of yourself. next. Absolutely. To it. Absolutely. So we're nearing the end of our college career. And unfortunately, we're also in our um, episodes nearing the end of Arsenio's late night tenure, his first round anyway. And the first um, episode we watched for this discussion is took place in 93, February 93. So I was not even in the country no. when this episode occurred, but it was quite the episode. The main guest is Prince. <laughs> And Arsenio was known to say that Prince was someone who was willing to come on the show, but wanted to control everything. First of all, wanted the whole show to be him. Interesting. I'm pretty sure he also wanted control over the any other guests that might appear. Mm-hmm. You know, he obviously had a really choreographed performance. And then the annoying part, he wouldn't sit for an interview. No. I mean, he would like later on in life sometimes sit for people, like for certain folks, but he was always very private. He was always very mysterious. He just wanted people to focus on his music. And he was asked directly about that. Yeah, he actually, when Arsenio came back and did a second run of his show was, like it was 2014, Prince did come on an interview and was actually kind of goofy and fun. So things changed. But at the time, that would be kind of an interesting problem, right? You're, you're Arsenio, you, it's to your benefit to have Prince on. He's a massive star, but he wants to control the whole thing. Like, what's that? You're not a talk show host, Prince. Like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> this is not but the, this is the thing. Show. He, like at the time, you know, he, he wasn't quite like Michael Jackson, but he was a huge superstar. So, so he could influence, I mean, like he's so great and no one really gets him on for as much, you know, for, I mean, he got a lot of play on Arsenio Hall. So he was probably like, it's worth, you know, letting him control the flow a bit just to have him on. And he did four four performances, right? On this show? He did. So it it was worth it to Arsenio. I mean, this is a major star. So it's like, okay, come and control my show. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he said it sounded to me from what I read that if Prince had had his way, he would have been on more. He would have had more hours of programming. But that, you know, I, I agree with Arsenio. You can't let somebody just take over. That's now weird. that we we think about this, I wonder what what convinced Prince to come on? Because, you know, he doesn't really need to do it. Right. Or do you think he was promoting? Well, he did. At this time, he did. Um, I read that this was a little bit of a lull in his career. Mm. He hadn't been on tour for a few years. And I'm not sure, you know, he had a, a really good run in the late 80s with a number of he hits. Did. And he hadn't had that. Um, so people were questioning him. This was kind of a comeback. So whether or not he really cared, because he's a little bit like our friend Rhonda, he wasn't one to really care about um, making the uh, achievements that 
were expected, but um, he was about to go on tour and he hadn't been around in a while. So this would have been something that was good for him to do. Yeah. And he's always constantly evolving. And he always has like a lot of people around him and different people. So so this time it's Prince and the new power generation, right? Because we've got a Which, lot of different evolutions of his name and who's in the band and who's, you know, he, he doesn't mind having a yeah. whole bunch of people with him. I was wondering about that because... I couldn't see who the new power generation was. They were like two guys dancing. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's it's a revolving door. Like then it's Prince and this and Prince and the, because Prince and the revolution was, was yeah. one, one, you know, one group. And then now this is other people plus Maite who later becomes his wife. <laughs> well, and he plays the piano and the guitar. So he doesn't really need a band per se. He needs something. And there seemed to be this guy in like a, Looks like a bishop's outfit yeah. playing the drums. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he likes to keep it interesting. And the thing about it is he's amazing. He's a genius. He does it all. He can dance. He can play any instrument. He's absolutely phenomenal. And and I thought that what he, you know, his, his uh, performances, each of them were really great. You know, he was definitely in his prime, you know, as well. You would argue that when he had Purple Rain, that was like the highest, you know, the highest point of his career. Maybe. I don't know. But he's he's had so much music. It's it's crazy. Yeah. So let's talk about his. He opens the show, basically. <laughs> it's a, a cold open on Prince. And this is an interesting outfit he has on. It sure yeah, is. It, I would say <laughs> overall, it kind of looks like a ringmaster of a circus, maybe. <laughs> I'm like, what are like you that. doing? But this is, you know, typical Prince trying to shock you, trying to make you think and this and that. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, on on one side, um, it's not very controversial because he is covered. He's not showing his butt or anything, no. but <laughs> it looks like a ringmaster. He has like that baton stick type thing that a ringmaster waves. And then the clearly the most interesting part is this patent leather cap he has on that has heavy gold chains yes. in front of his face. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Sia, you know, Sia, the woman who, uh, yes. artist, it kind of reminded me of that. Um, yeah, that was it did, interesting. It did remind me of like Lady Gaga and stuff. You know, I didn't really remember Prince as having, I knew that he, he, he dressed a certain way, but I didn't remember him as having like all these props, but he did. Yeah. He's a, he's an interesting dude because, well, we could get it, but, but yes, that was the part that definitely uh, was intriguing. And then of course, the end of that final performance with the fire. <laughs> yeah. I was like, so is that he real? Sings, <laughs> <laughs> he sings My Name is Prince, which is interesting because shortly after this, I think he changes his name to the unpronounceable symbol. Yes. <laughs> because he was mad at some so contractual he, thing. So he yes. figured, I, I'm, I'm a no-name person now. <laughs> right. He has some kind of an identity thing going on between the chains over his face and the name and anyway and then well be, before he, the fire there was like different little articles in his hand right about like prince you know like people yeah. talking junk so and then so i guess he's it's like some kind of protest against the media and people thinking they know you because you're famous kind of thing well so i read about this and he, so he sings my name is prince this like smoke and i am funky he stands on the piano <laughs> yeah um all kinds of uh production effects and at the end he's holding up Something nobody would do today, photocopies of reviews of his album. Yes. You know, Prince is disappointing or I don't know what they say. But 
He holds them up while the band is playing, throws them on the ground, squirts lighter fluid on them, and starts a fire. <laughs> and a couple of things funny about that, like that's just so analog, so pre-computer that you're going to make a big statement by burning up paper. Like it doesn't have any meaning now. Like if somebody writes whatever they write on the internet and you can burn whatever you want, but it's still out there. Right, <laughs> right, right. So there's that. And then I also read that the uh, reviewer who wrote those interviews happened to be in the audience at Arsenio. Oh my God, really? Yeah, I don't know, happened to be, or Arsenio also mentions that Prince like required a whole bunch of guests be invited to the audience. So maybe Arsenio, I mean, uh, Prince invited him. Oh, interesting. But he said, I enjoyed that part. You know, obviously, as a reviewer, I was surprised that Prince even read what I had to say. Mm -hmm. He said, I was surprised that somebody as successful as Prince would have that thin of a skin because he said, that review was five months old. Mm-hmm. So what was he doing? Carrying in his in his mind and his heart for five months that somebody didn't like his work? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know, Prince strikes me as the type of person with with Prince. I mean, not that he didn't like learn how to do certain things. I've 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 read that he he actually learned how to he was he, he at one point, I think he he trained in classical ballet. So this guy has done some some dance training. But for the most part, Prince is a natural talent. I mean, he can play over well over 20 instruments. And on one album, he basically produced all of the different. He, he was the one doing all of the instrument parts of the song. Like he's yeah. a genius. So for me, it's it's uh, I, he doesn't strike me because of his ability and his genius. It, I would never think that he was that insecure about anything because he's a natural talent. Like I thought he was pretty secure about his talent, you know, so I, I am. And maybe. Maybe he's not even insecure. Could be he's insecure, but maybe he's on another. He's probably on another plane from all of us. Like in other mm-hmm. words, he is incorporating this critic and his reviews as part of the art. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. That's a that's more that that seems to make more sense in my brain that that would be the case because I think that mm-hmm. Prince. I don't know. He just strikes me as someone who just knows I was born to do this. This is an organic thing for me to create music, to sing. Everything that he does is so signature. So like, it's not like he learned it somewhere. It's just that's him. Kind of like my a little bit like Michael. Ja- I, I think Michael Jackson and him have a lot of similarities that way. You know, it- well, one thing I would say is different that I noticed in this was that. Did you notice that he does four songs and they're all extremely different? Yeah, there's like funk, borderline reggae. There's like something for everyone. Right, right. So that's probably that was probably intentional on his on his end. And then and I don't think Michael Jackson really did that. A lot of his music. I I don't think that his music all sounds the same, but he had his groove, you know. Also, you you get the sense from Prince that he loves to invest his time in new artists like he was involved with Sheila E. Remember Sheila E? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, helped her in her career. And he was involved with Apollonia. Not, I don't think Apollonia is a great talent. But when he falls in love and, he, and you know, with, with a woman, and usually they're very beautiful women, it's like he, 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 he wants to invest in them artistically. He wants to bring, bring them into his world. And yet again, he does it with Maite. Uh, Maite. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> Maite. <laughs> She's very... This is Maite Garcia, who was his girlfriend at the time. Yes, at the time, but then go, later becomes his wife. Ahead. 
since you, uh, I think, seem to know more a little more about her, go ahead. Well, the only thing that l- concerns me a little is that when he met Maite, she was underage. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he met her in 1990 or something like that is what I read. And then when he married her, he, she was 22. It was like a few years later. And I think the showing, this showing was in 1993. So Maite would have been about mm-hmm. 19 if we've got that right, either 19 or 20. So pretty young. And so there's a substantial difference. There's a 15 year difference because he was 37 mm-hmm. when they got married. So like she's, she's really, really young. Um, and then the, I thought in terms of the show and how she, her, the first impression I got with the 75 cent thing and the, the whole weird. stomach thing, that, that was pretty bizarre. Like I could have done, and, yeah. and then she didn't like it, you know, she didn't provide any information or anything. She just had that little moment with Arsenio and it was kind of bizarre. Yeah, she seems to think that this is going to be very profound and entertaining. And it's just not like Arsenio asked how she met Prince. And she says, do you have 75 cents? He's like, what are you talking about? And anyway, long story short, turns out that she's, I think, a belly dancer. And she's going to take the three quarters on her stomach and flip them over, but lying down. But it doesn't really seem like she's doing it right or something. It seems like kind of a bust, if you ask me. Yeah, I, it was bizarre. And it's interesting because my guess is that, you know, because she's so young and Chris is, uh, Chris, oh my God, Prince is who he is. You know, he's a major superstar. He's significantly older than her. I don't think that she had the authorization. Like it was his, like he approved that. Like he was the one that said, you can go ahead and do a little, you know, dumb exchange with Arsenio and then do the whole stomach thing because it'll be kind of funny. And then that's it. Like it wasn't like she was allowed to sit down and and answer any questions about their relationship, you know? No, as a matter of fact, you wouldn't, I I guess Arsenio kind of, indicates that this is his girlfriend but he that's not really the point he just is saying that she's gonna perform with them later right and that was the extent of it but why did they even feel the need to bring her out like that it was kind of like we could have done without it there was nothing i read i read definitely i read something that said alluded to the idea that because prince wouldn't sit for an interview he offered his girlfriend which that wasn't really an interview but you know right yeah, I mean, we. It, I mean, it, maybe he thought it was a cute little thing to share or something. I mean, like I said, I just don't believe that anything that happened was like done just you know without any thinking involved. He, I, oh, I, no. I think everything. Yeah, Prince would have approved. Right, it. he has to say, okay, it's that that'll be cute, and then we can perform later, and Sinbad can come on and all that. I he must obviously like Sinbad then, right? If I would think so, I would think so too. And Sinbad is obviously a fan as well, but we won't get to him yet. True. Yeah. Yeah. He is a fan. Maybe they all know each other. I don't know. Yeah. But it's Arsenio said that Prince liked him, Arsenio, because he knew that Arsenio loved show business. And so did Prince. Oh, okay. It's it's interesting to see, like, the connections that Prince has with certain celebrities. I'm always kind of intrigued, like. Like, for example, um, I don't know if you knew the, know this, but Van Jones, the commentator on uh, one of the commentators on CNN, him. they are they were really tight. And when Prince, that's weird. I know. So it's like, wow, yeah, really? Weird. That was your buddy? Like Prince was like very much like no one really knows him. He's an enigma. Like we don't really like we know that. he And also, apparently, he was very um, extremely kind and generous. Like if somebody needed help, he would, you know, like like people just don't. don't he didn't want it out there at all. You know. I also read that the he's from Minneapolis mm-hmm. and like Arsenio, he shouts out Minneapolis a lot and 
maintained his, was it Paisley Park? Yeah. In Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And they, although, you know, he, he's an unusual person to come out of our Midwest of these United States, they loved him there. They didn't, they didn't, um, the, the, the affection was mutual. Mm-hmm. And um, they even begin this episode with something that's a little short and weird, but it's some kind of a fake news broadcast from downtown Minneapolis yeah. with Kirstie Alley playing yeah. a newscaster. Mm-hmm. So that's just another little surprising feature of our enigmas that he has those ties. Well, you know, when you think about it, Prince was the type of guy that could, I don't know how he did it because he was a major superstar, right? But no one really bothered him. Like no one was really chasing him down. You didn't like see a whole bunch of tabloid stuff on him. And I think because he helped that by being so private, he, it must have been the reason because why else wouldn't we be poking around trying to figure out who Prince is dating next? Or it just, it, it, it felt like he had a, a good degree of privacy in his life during, you know, throughout his life. Don't you agree with that? Or cause it felt he wasn't. Yeah. And I'm also fodder. guessing that because he appeared in costume all the time mm-hmm. and he was a real small guy, yeah. if he put on a baseball cap and sunglasses, I'm not sure you'd recognize him. Well, you know, yes, but, but then again, it's like they have a way of finding people that that the people like the the tabloids and and those kind of folks have a way of finding people that are big names like Justin Bieber. Oh yeah, or, he, he was definitely you know um, helping his cause by being as private as he was. But I also think it's helpful that you can potentially slip by now and then. Yeah, yeah, no, true. But I, he was lucky in that way, I think. That, that he wasn't con- like I would even forget about him and be like, hey, what's up with Prince? Because it wasn't like he was always in my face. I know. I, you I, know I didn't pick up People magazine and go, oh, what's going on with Prince again? He was a private dude. Now, there was a weird story that I think now that you mention that he married Maite, I think the weird story might have involved her. Well, there's a sad was, story, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think this is the same one with the baby. Yes. That's awful. This story is so weird. I don't know if you know this, but. You probably do. I do. Yeah, I I read about it. Prince and Maite lost a child Mm -hmm. and sad, but weird. He, according to Maite, required that the two of them proceed with an interview with Oprah Winfrey about the baby after the baby had died. As if we're going to give you a tour of our nursery and we're so looking forward to the baby. That is really bizarre. I know. And with Oprah Winfrey, you see how selective he is. So he must have had some kind of relationship with with Oprah, because I, I, I suspect he would only pick somebody he thought would be fair to him and that, you know, that he trusted. Yeah, I don't know why he would want to share that. Um, or want to pretend. So in other words, it, it, they weren't revealing that the baby in that interview it would be like we're waiting, like she's still pregnant. Right. And maybe it's, you know, sometimes, sadly, a baby will die and the woman still has to carry the baby. Mm-hmm. I I suspect that would be the case because otherwise it really wouldn't make a lot of sense. So I read from Maite, I didn't know it at the time, but I'm putting it together now that, you know, she thought this was really strange and did not want to proceed with any interview like that, but that he insisted. And did they do it? I don't remember. I don't, I, yeah. They did go According to and- what I read. Now, I don't know if it aired. I didn't pay that much attention at the time, but. Wow. I guess he was had a hard time accepting, right? I don't know. I, I, or to, uh, to your point about privacy, maybe like wanted to put up a story that would distract from the truth. Possibly. Yeah. So people, but then people, but that would also bring more attention to it. Like, oh, the baby's coming soon. So yeah, that's an interesting thing that I had not heard about. Interesting. 
I mean, he 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 was an interesting and complicated cat because again, mm-hmm. he, he really wasn't about Hollywood or New York. He like you said, he he had a home in Paisley Park, and that's where he lived. And he was able to live there fine, right? People probably respected his privacy, and he was able to get around pretty. I guess once someone is there and you over time, people just figure like he's part of our town. He's part of, you know, and just let he's one of one of us. He's one of the locals. Just leave him alone. But well, and like you say, I think he was generous probably to the city. Yeah. And so I'm sure he was, you know. Yeah. And whatever. He's not bothering anybody. He's in there and only contributing. So I always thought he was an interesting figure as far as his look, you know, that androgynous look. I could never quite figure it out whether he um, may have been bisexual or, or not. We never heard anything about that being the no, case. Not a peep about that. He, they seem to love women. He seemed to love women. And and his also his appearance, I guess it's kind of like with Michael Jackson. Their talent is so great. Their genius is so, uh, you know, they're, they're just geniuses, really, that that uh, people just don't really think about the fact that they are wearing high platform shoes and well, Prince yeah. did not, not Mike, but, um, high, you know, and the makeup and like, it's interesting how he could get away with that, you know? Yeah. Well, that was eighties, early nineties. That was a period of a lot of androgyny. But he kept it going all the way through. He was always, he did. Yeah. yeah. And it was, and people just accepted, accepted that as part of his art, you know, or maybe he saw it that way that, that he didn't want to be defined by any one thing because he was an artist. Maybe that was part right. of the reason. But he was he also was very again, you know, because all of his early hits in the eighties, well into the nineties, it's, you know, good music. It's pumping. His vocals are great. It's it's you know, his vocals are daring and and they don't follow the rules. You know, even vocally he never followed the rules. And but <laughs> there's this problem this this contrast or this you know that goes against what we learn about him as far as his religion he was a jehovah wit jehovah's witness he oh was part yeah of that religion. i forgot about that yeah and he uh, i from what i heard i think he was actively doing the work like going door to door and um you know preaching the word and all of that stuff and i respect that entirely people's right to you know preach and 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 carry about you know and and you know act on their faith um it's just weird, you know, when you think about his whole career and the image he exuded and the sexuality and all that stuff. But yet, you know, he also, you know, was really devoted to being a Jehovah's Witness. And sometimes I, I, I read that one time he went he went to somebody, you know, somebody around the way, you know, somebody close to him he knocked on their door and and they were listening. You know, they were, give, you know, giving him a shot to explain the stuff. And and at one point the the, the whoever it was said, you know, you look a little bit like the, the singer Prince. <laughs> And and he was like, yeah, people have told me that. And then he just kept it moving. Like he was just so sincere about about doing that work, you know, and I just even if I don't necessarily, you know, that's not the religion I grew up in or, you know, that's, you know, I don't necessarily believe the same beliefs that a Jehovah's Witness person would. But I just totally respect that he was devoted to it, to his religion and that he wasn't, you know, promoting himself or anything like that. It was just like a normal person going door to door doing his thing, you know. It, it's just yeah i don't know what all you know requirements there are to be a jehovah's witness but it seems like prince would have broken some of the requirements. yeah absolutely <laughs> like everything he did on stage i mean he it, it, like how did you know i don't know how long he was a jehovah's witness but that you know he was definitely into it and he definitely it was not just you know oh that's my religion and that's it he was actively 
you know, preaching and going door to door and doing all that kind of stuff. No, I know you're right. I I don't think he ever left that religion, but it's not like I'm a Prince scholar. I know that Mike, Mike did. Michael Jackson did leave it. I think, I believe he did, but he did grow up in, you know, in the, in the, you know, with the, you know, because his mom would take him to, I believe it's called Kingdom Hall where they, where the Jehovah's Witness gather and, and, um, you know, read the scripture and all that stuff. We should probably give Sinbad a little love. Yeah, Sinbad. You know, I'm not necessarily a huge Sinbad fan, although I respect his, you know, he's gotten far, you know, he got far in his career as far as being a comic and, you know, and I, I liked him okay on, on um, A Different World. I didn't, he wasn't my favorite character. <laughs> I think he, like, for whatever reason, he's one of those people that had a moment and then after the fact became, unfortunately, a little bit of a joke. Yeah. As a celebrity, I don't know why. Maybe he's a little goofy, but I liked him. He was at the height of his time here, more or less, and uh, I thought he was a good good guest. He has a good personality, and he plays along with Arsenio, and yeah. I, if I had a show, I would have him on. Yeah, I mean, he he's, he's okay, and it's kind of like one of those things, like, I wish you well, and I hope that you can find something where you can, you know, continue to make money and, and do what you love and all of that stuff. I just, I'm not a huge fan, although... Sounds like he probably has made money with Disney. I think I read that, that he's done some voiceover work and stuff. Um, and that's great. Yeah, isn't he? I feel like, is he the genie? I'm probably making that up. I don't, I, I want to say he's done some some work on Disney. I could quickly look it up. But. Well, he says in this interview that he has just signed a Disney deal. Yes. And an HBO special. So he's riding a little high at this point, except for the fact that he just got divorced. Right. And which I learned, believe it or not, that he remarried the woman that he divorced in that year. He remarried her again in 2002. So, but oh, then I think, did they stay? Married? I think they may have gotten divorced again. Um, but oh. so it was a rock, you know, there's a lot of emotions there. But um, yeah, no, he's a, you know, he seems like a really good guy. And I thought, I thought some of the stories he told were funny about the Superman story with the towel and, and oh, flying that was out cute. and. I mean, I, I think it was a little dangerous for his dad not to tell him he really can't fly <laughs> just in case. You yeah, don't know he, what kind of, <laughs> you don't know what he's going to attempt to do next, you know, but. um, Yeah, that was I like the way he told the story, too. Like he was jumping off maybe his roof. roof that's know, what he said. He house. said roof. That's why I was like, holy moly. Yeah, that is scary. It is. And he fell and he, he said, you know, how come I can't fly, dad? And the dad said, well, you don't have the right tie. Superman has a certain tie. <laughs> And he thought it was, well, actually, he thought it was dangerous. But um, the idea for Arsenio and the audience was that it was cool that his dad didn't tell him, you can't fly. Right. Didn't didn't discourage his uh, aspiration, but just told him, you don't have what you need. Right. Yeah, it's it's cute. It's a cute. It's a a good story. And and um, yeah, no, he's an interesting cat. I did. I did read up that he had a brief stint in the military, like in the Air Force and think he was. A little too, too, like, you know, into like telling jokes. And I think that that's, I, I don't know that he was like kicked out or anything like that, but I think that that's one of the reasons why that didn't last. Well, he mentions he in the interview too, playing football. I don't know if he played in college or what, but I thought, yeah, that makes sense. He's a big dude. Right. And, you know, I like how he came up with the name Sinbad. That was an interesting thing that he, uh, that he, there was a show on TV and that he somehow thought that that would be a good stage name for him. And what he described as, um, 
you know, the guy, uh, you know, not being like the strongest, but definitely being clever and smart, you know, mm-hmm. witty and all that stuff. And that he thought he wanted to incorporate that into his identity, you know, so that was cool. I liked when he talked about um, when he had a job as a cable installer yeah. <laughs> and he was just giving everybody all the cable. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue in the hood. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go yeah, ahead and give you showtime. He was supposed to be taken down the cable, like disconnecting for non-payment, but <laughs> the whole family came out and yelled at him. So he's like, I just gave him everything. HBO. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was funny. So, I mean, he's definitely like, I, I can, I like beneath the, the humor and all that stuff. I like when I hear like these people paid their dues, like they had different jobs. They worked to get to where they are. So I always have a good, good respect for that. You know, like you could see that he definitely paid his dues and that it hadn't been yeah. easy to get to where he was. So, you know, I wish him well. I think he's about probably in his sixties at this point, And I don't know what he's been doing lately. I feel like he still does voiceover work. I think he probably he does. I think, I mean, he's, you know, and, but I'm sure he's quite comfortable in his life and probably is, is fine, you know, being in retirement mode if he is in retirement mode. Well, there was another guest on this episode. I don't know if you remember, uh, basketball player. Yes. I didn't know him, but his name is Brad Doherty. Yes. I, I had never seen him before. I had never, you know, so it was my first introduction to him and seemed like a very polite you know, and, and well-dressed young man, <laughs> tall, very tall. <laughs> yeah. Arsenio has him on because he's on the Cleveland Cavaliers, which is Arsenio's hometown team. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's, he's kind of suave almost like more well-spoken than most athletes. Yeah. I mean, and he even said it, you know, like it wasn't my lifelong dream to do this, you know, like when I was in 10th or 11th grade, that's when I realized like, Hey, if I can play back, you know, if I can, you know, play basketball and do it well enough, I can get a scholarship and go to school and go to college. So he, you know, he was really thinking about that more so than like, oh, you know, I want to get into basketball and be a big, you know, NBA player. That really wasn't what was motivating him, which is interesting because that's not what you hear typically, you know. Um, well, and he's also like some kind of a semi-genius, like skipped a grade yeah, or something. Yeah, and- yeah. Like, I mean, you know, graduated from college at 20, like usually, you know, People are a little bit older than that. And so, yeah, it was an interesting thing. Now, one weird, sad thing about him is he was definitely at the top of the game during the interview. But then, like, I think a year later, that was his last season, by the way. The 1993-1994 season was his last season due to back problems. He never played again. Oh. Yeah. So, and I, I believe he's done some news broadcasting type work and he's kept himself busy doing other things. But, um... He he didn't play like it, it's weird like that you know Arsenio had him just as he was ending his career basically that was the last season at 28 never played again I always wonder about people that tall I feel like they're very vulnerable to certain yeah injuries yeah so because he's like I don't know was he seven feet tall he's yeah no he's uh, yeah I would say so I mean he taught like he was <laughs> I felt like he was like so much taller than Arsenio. And like, it was like, Arsenio looked like a little man, you know, (laughs) it's like, holy moly. So, but yeah, he seems like a really nice man, just really polite and, you know, nice guy and um, married guy, two kids. So just seems like a, someone you can just sit down and have a normal conversation with. Well, we talked about ending our own time at BC and um, we're in 93 here and we know in 94, Arsenio ceases, his show. Mm-hmm. And in 93, 
I found it interesting. There's a little bit of writing on the wall in terms of that. David Letterman moves to CBS, which allows him to be in the 1130 time slot. So as of August, you have Letterman, Leno, I believe, Arsenio, who has, as I think I mentioned in our early episode, had lost some affiliates due to Chevy Chase briefly having a show and the um, some of the Fox affiliates who were carrying Arsenio carried Chevy Chase instead, so that damaged him. So I do think you can see that coming. However, you can't see it in this show that we watched. Like around this time, Arsenio celebrates that he's done a thousand episodes, which is insane. Wow. And at the beginning of this show, I noticed that he's got like a new logo. He's got a new slogan, which is like uh, the hood meets Hollywood. He's got a new theme. Like it's really, to me, sad. Like it, it seems like he's ready to take off to a new level. And yet things are happening in the landscape that are going to probably prevent that. Right. Yeah. Clearly, you don't see that this is somebody who's like, you know, at the end of the road. No, if anything, he's going to he, he feels like this is going to continue for a long time, mm-hmm. you know. And things are happening in the world, too, that are going to affect us. They don't have an effect on him, per se. But right at this time, in February 93, which is the time of this episode, there was the uh, first bombing of the World Trade Center Mm -hmm. in New York City. And I I wasn't here. I was in Japan. And I remember hearing it on the news and being confused and alarmed. But I don't, since you were here, I'm curious to know, did people think it was significant a sign of things to come or was it just one viewed as one of those like one-off type of incidents i mean clearly anytime anything like that happens it's always gonna be disturbing and take center stage but it wasn't like in you know it wasn't like in 2001 where the world stopped it wasn't that way i mean it was a devastating thing that occurred but it's not like everybody went around thinking about the possibility of terrorism like, oh, I might right. be in the, in the movie theater and some, you know, something might happen. Like, that's what happened after 2001, after September mm-hmm. 11th. Like, you went around thinking, like, okay, don't be surprised if, you know, if there's any type of terrorism, if somebody comes out with a gun and starts shooting or, like, then it's like a normal, not normal, but something that could happen. It's in the range of possibilities. Whereas before uh, 9-11, that wasn't in your mindset. Like it would be crazy to think that you could go to the mall or go to work and be killed. It was a crazy thought. Right. So, so no, I don't remember it being that impactful as far as, you know, people my age and, you know, them, you know, being influenced by that in that way. No. Yeah. We weren't getting the, the um, clue that people in the world potentially hated us enough that this was going to be an ongoing campaign. It wasn't just a one-off. Right. I think people at higher levels, like politicians, they could see the writing on the wall. You know, they've got the intel. They could see that this could potentially eventually happen. But I even think there's a sense of like false safety with them, even with the intel. I I think, you know, are people bold enough to really attack us? I think it, I think it's until it happened, it wasn't real. And when it happened, then it well, was, it just opened up the door and it was like, it can happen anytime. It's not going to be a shock, you know? Yeah. And I hate to say, I sound like a little bit of a broken record, but because this is pre-internet, we didn't have the same visibility to see right. that something was building, that there was this, we didn't know the scope of the people that might be involved absolutely. with this. That is absolutely movement. right. Because then it's like if we had the Internet, this would have been like seen over and over again. And maybe then it would have had a different level of impact and analysis by everybody because. Well, that and also we didn't like 
we didn't know how many of these people there were right. because they were just meeting wherever they were meeting in the real world. And you couldn't see them in chat rooms or leaving, you know, messages for one another on a Yahoo server. And right. It, that just exposed a lot. It did. And then we had the OJ trial, I believe, around that time, too. We had a, a we number did. of big, had, yeah, big events that took center stage. Yeah. And not just that influenced what was to come for all of us, like the Rodney King verdict, which we talked about last time, Mm -hmm. probably influenced the OJ verdict. Yes. OJ was tried for the murder of his wife and the murder occurred uh, in June 94. So this is right around the same time, 92, 93, 94. All these things either by themselves dominated conversation or led to things that later dominated conversation in our whole experience in the late 90s, early 2000s. I agree. I agree. And and even now, it's it's amazing how many documentaries we have out there about things that happened back in the 90s. Or, or, or you know, like it, 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 it was a very impactful time, whether it be the, the, you know, Clinton Lewinsky scandal or whether it be right. the Simpson trial, Rodney King. We go over these things, you know, over and over. Like we try to learn from what we didn't know back then. Yeah. And you can, I didn't think of it until we put this together for the podcast, but you can kind of see that the real early 90s, late 80s, early 90s was the last of a period of innocence. And by the time Arsenio is sunsetting his show and these other things are happening, you enter an era that is more familiar to us now. You know, yes. like the news that travels fast. Um, overexposure on the internet, increased ability to research terror groups or other groups that are threatening. It's definitely a transitional period that if you really look, you can see the signs of. Well, that reminds me of the situation with the Clinton and Lewinsky scandal as far as the Drudge Report and how Monica has said over and over that she feels like she's, quote, patient zero as far as the internet spread. That the fact that he could Mm -hmm. put that on the Internet and just with a click of a button, send it on those airwaves and every, you know, basically everybody around the world knew about the scandal within a moment. And that was unprecedented. She said that's why she said she's she was she was it. She was patient. She was. Yeah, there was that. And also he's challenging the way journalism is done. Right. Yeah. He doesn't have really training or commitment. He's kind of a um, a jerk. (laughs) Yeah. He's acting the part wearing a trench coat and a hat and breaking stories before a traditional journalist would be convinced that they're real stories. Yes. And that's the the birth of that. Like, like you can just put anything on and I don't have to verify it. I just have to put it on the internet. You know, mm-hmm. it's scary. And what I saw, I mean, it's comparing things that are not entirely similar, but y- you can see if when you watch these later episodes, you can see the world changing. Like we talked about Prince in his opening act, burning some photocopies of newspapers, which, as I said, would have zero impact today. Like I, nobody would even, I, I don't think, make that as a statement. It just is meaningless. And then at the end of his um, performance. Well, I mean, they could do it like art, like a symbolic thing, you know, like I'm burning it because whatever, I don't care about it or it's insignificant, whatever, whatever the message is. I mean, they could potentially do it as, a, you know, symbolically as part of the you art. You could, but like you said, nobody's even buying a newspaper. Right. So I don't know it would occur to anybody to do that. R- yeah. Or like um, thinking of all uh, Sinead O'Connor ripping a picture of the Pope. I just don't think that's the statement even an artist would make today. Like, 
It's usually through images that we convey certain things, whether we're rejecting something or, you know, whatever, or promoting something. It's you, that, That's how artists generally do it now on a bigger platform, big, big visuals, you know. Right. Madonna's the queen of that. Uh, yeah, she started that. Mm-hmm. But I noticed at the end of Prince's performance, he did something again that was so analog. He takes out a Polaroid camera and is taking pictures of his band and his girlfriend. And then he ends by taking a picture of the audience, Mm -hmm. which is just a big white flash, like a flashbulb. Mm -hmm. And it just seems so dated. Yeah, that that part, I would agree with you. Yeah, I would agree with that. But this is is the time. Like, Mm -hmm. things are just about to change. Yes. And truthfully, there's a lot that I miss pre-internet, like how certain things were for us personally during our youth and everything. But I also like the, you know, the, the ease of like being able to tell someone, Hey, I'm at the gym just this morning, Jamie. Right. You know, I would, I would have had to, you know, worry about coming home and calling you, but no, I don't have to do that. I can just, wherever I am, send you a text, Jamie, I'll be home in a few minutes. And it's like, we didn't have that. that ease before we had to no, run back not at all. otherwise jamie would be wondering where i was there are certain things that are great i just wish we could sometimes i wish we could put a cap on it because i feel like we're oh boy i don't want to get well, overly deep when... here but i feel like sometimes we're playing with fire <laughs> like we're going too far you know oh, even 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 yeah. technology like with everything i feel like sometimes we're going too far but we can't help ourselves like this whole thing about people going up into space even like uh, you know well, Pandora's box is open. Right. So. And it's like, we can't stop it. And I'm not suggesting that we, we, I'm conflicted, you know, I'm conflicted sometimes. Like, should we be pushing things so far? But maybe that's well, part. and we're so nostalgic. I think that we mm-hmm. wanted to do this podcast. And part of what we discovered when we were talking to my friend Shannon was that this was a moment in time when people in our example, in a dorm, stopped everything at 11 or 1130 to see what was on and got together. And it was must-see TV. And maybe you even researched in your TV guide who was going to be on that night. In my TV guide. (laughs) But it was true. And made your plans. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't happen. Like another thing I remember, um, this is way back, but just made me think of it. When Elvis Presley died. Mm Mm-hmm. I can vividly remember my father calling his brother on the telephone to tell him this news, which you would never do today because the expectation is that everybody learns the news, like news that big, unmissable. Right. Like, and, and there's no, no need to wait for the six o'clock news. It's going to be everywhere. And, and, and you wouldn't call like sometimes like my sisters and I regularly communicate by text. We would just text each other like, oh, my God, so-and-so died. Or, you know, like, right. and that's the end of but it. But you probably would say you read the news, right? Like you wouldn't assume that you were breaking the news to this person. No, no, not necessarily. I always think that they probably could be ahead of me on something. And sometimes they're not. It just might be like they're, you know, you're focused on work and you haven't had a chance to check the, C, you know, CNN or something like that. Um, but it's different. It's not like you're going to take the time to call anybody. You're just not really going to no. do that. You know, and I think that getting all philosophical here, but that may be the reason that Arsenio's second show did not take off, because I think he was in the same model of a very compelling late night offering. But people were not viewing late night in the same way. Like Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, they're popular now as much because of the stuff they put on YouTube as the stuff that 
is on at 1130. Like, I, I, right. I don't think that kids in dorms are all gathering around to watch those shows like we did because we didn't have as many options. We had to watch things when they were on for the most right. part. And that led to a kind of a popularity and a kind of experience that doesn't exist today. No, I think the only time that people get together to, is if they're getting together because they want to be together. Like, hey, are you bored? Let's get together. You know what? I want to watch so you know this uh, you know show on Netflix. Come over like that as a way of like socially connecting. Because, well, yeah, but they yeah. they get together on their time. Correct. Like Netflix. You watch that whenever you want. Right. You don't watch it at eleven thirty. Correct. It's it's it, it definitely yeah that that's you know definitely the case. Um, you know, I think that people, I think that kids in the dorm rooms are just watching whatever they want on their laptop, and mm-hmm. that's just. It. And if they get together socially, it's because they really want to get together socially to chat or, you know, about their boyfriends or something like that. And it's just very different. Yeah. And you can I, I didn't expect when we started this that we'd be able to like so clearly see that changing. But it you you can if you pay attention to some of these later episodes, you can see the things right. that you can see how things in the world, technological changes have affected things as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I thought it was so cool that I could. Act, you know, through my computer, just Google something like just the fact that I could Google anything and find yeah, out. Yeah, that still amazes I me. Thought, I might be old, right, but. <laughs> but I thought just that initial sort of introduction to like how cool the Internet was that I could Google and find anything. I thought that was cool enough. And then it just exploded Facebook and and Instagram and, and like all this stuff, you know, what's up and the video calls and it just and exploded. online shopping. Yeah. Just whatever you want. I mean, it's good. And and sometimes it makes me sad. I'm some, I'm I'm amazed and conflicted at the same time. Well, and I think when they write about the pandemic in years to come, one of the things they're going to note is that it played out very differently because of the moment we were at technologically, like even five years before, I don't think that you could have just seamlessly decided or relatively seamlessly decided, okay, we're all going to work from home and school's going to be from home. Like, I don't think the technology would have supported it. No. And if it doesn't, then that's a real different experience. That could be like a pandemic that causes a great depression or, you know, causes kids to miss a year of school. Well, it would you know cause, what I mean? It could have had much different effects. Like a lot of companies could still continue business. So if business yeah. can't be continued because I can't exactly. get to the office, yeah, we would have had a serious problem. Right. So te- and the technology and telework no, saved us. Yeah. There's no telling when a pandemic is going to hit. And this one happened to hit in a moment where we could some, I mean, it was it has many devastating effects, but economically, anyway, we could somewhat rock and roll with it. Yeah, you know? we, and that's what we've done. I mean, some people mm-hmm. did suffer. I mean, there are a lot of people who suffered. I don't want to minimize that. I never, I never ever thought of just all of a sudden classes being from home for little kids. I know it's such a wild change, and um, I want things to like everybody. I want things to get back to normal again. I'm just really, I'm quite scared about our spiritual evolution. Like, I feel like this whole being at home and being at home for year after year is is a problem. We have to get back to the normal routines of things. We can implement telework where it makes sense. I'm not opposed to it, but we've got to get back to the normal course of stuff. We've got to. I know you're, you're more soulful in that way. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't. 
I think this could be a problem. And when people say, I don't want, you know, I just kind of, I am also a little bit disturbed by, I don't ever want to go back to the office. I don't know. I think there's something wrong with that. I really do. If you can, if you can facilitate being at home and working extra hours at home, go ahead. If people want to work extra hours at home, Hey, I'm all for it. Whatever, whatever you have to do to make an organization more productive, but not interacting with other beings and feeling more comfortable via email and through the video, there's a buffer with video even. There's a buffer there. And I just kind of feel like... Yeah, that all is weird. But I guess my feeling is like maybe our interaction in the future won't be in an office. Like maybe we don't go back to exactly what we were doing, but we have human interaction in some other ways that I don't know yet. I don't know Which what they fine. are, but maybe it's not the office. I, I think that's my biggest problem is the fact that there's no... Like I look at us this whole year and a half and I haven't... I've only seen employees when they've had to come into the office because they're either retiring and bringing back equipment or they have to pick up something. Other than that, I haven't seen anybody else from, you know, anybody from my office, even my own coworker, my, you know, right hand person. And I I, I just, you know, I I, I think that's that's really strange and, and I worry. Well, I think now we, right in this moment, you and I are recording our own little equivalent of 1993 Arsenio. Like somebody will might potentially listen to this in 20 years mm-hmm. and say they didn't know what was coming. Yes. They were worried about blah, blah thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe they were right to worry about it. But what really was happening was this other thing that they, they hadn't seen the signs of or they were just starting to see the signs of. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because... Unfortunately or fortunately, we have to keep going ahead. We can't go back and we can't stay stagnant. That's where my conflict is. Like I realize that I can't just stay stagnant and say, all right, we've achieved this level of technology. Here's where it ends. I know I can't say that. I know it has to keep moving. I know people have to keep learning. Yeah, and, and it's not our choice. Right. You and me don't get to choose. Right. And And so with nostalgia, with heartbreak, with a conflicted soul with everything, I say we move forward. As a society, Mm -hmm. we go forward. I just hope that we move forward in a way where we're all spiritually better. I don't care if the technology gets even more advanced and crazy and unbelievable. Okay, but our soul, I just want to make sure we're all moving towards something that's going to make us better, better people. So, Well, speaking of a a good soul and a better person, we need to talk about Dolly Parton. We sure do. What a great way to... (laughs) transition right into Miss Dolly. She's so great. She's un- unbelievable. I mean, this was a really short clip, but um, I only... It wasn't so short, I thought. Well, I don't know. The one where she's singing, I Will Always Love You, right? Yes. So um, this is a year before. This is in 92. So <clears throat> we still would have been in at BC when this happened. But um, the, of course, the reason I, I picked this is that she's talking about Well, Arsenio asked her about Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston optioning her song, I Will Always Love You, for the movie The Bodyguard. Mm -hmm. And it was cool to see the fact that they knew that was big, but it hadn't happened yet. And she was saying things like, yeah, if Whitney does actually record it, that could be a life changer, you know, for that little song. And man, did that come true. That was an amazing song and an amazing, probably, uh, economic turn of events for Dolly Parton that her song became a pop hit after being a a country hit twice. I just feel like some things are just meant to be. And boy, was those all of those little events just came together perfectly up up until one point. Dolly herself said, I always thought 
that if somebody great, somebody, like a great singer, could take the song, it could be really great. She knew it instinctively, you know, that, that it was a great song. Mm-hmm. And she had already had some success with it. And it's just amazing how, how things just come together, how, how they even had the force. Or, or I don't necessarily, I don't know that they would have predicted that the song would have been number one for 16 weeks. I don't know that anybody would have predicted that. Um, but, but they knew that that was a great song. Even the, the people making the movie, Kevin Costner, to his credit, that he, I don't know if he was the one that actually zeroed in on the song or if somebody else helped him or gave him advice or something. But, but just that they had the, the inkling that that song would be the right song. I just kind of feel like there's a lot of divine intervention happening. It was just everything fits so perfectly to lead up to the perfect moment of Whitney Houston having the biggest song of her career. I mean, it made well, her an icon. It, she was already great. You know, even the um, the earlier story, someone other than Dolly wanting to uh, record that song? No, because I thought she, my understanding of that song, well, back in the day, Dolly was part of a duo with this other gentleman named Porter Wagner. Yes, Porter Wagner. So she, and it's Wag, it's Wagner as opposed to Wagner, right? <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> I, I don't know. know that, I don't know because <laughs> the spelling, I'm like, is it Wagner and not Wagner? But anyway, um, so she wrote it, you know, because they were separating and it was, you know, it was a heartfelt sort of goodbye song for him. And then she went, uh, she did it again or she remade it again or something like that in, w- when she uh, acted in Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. So other than those two situations, I don't recall anybody else wanting to sing that song. Well, I heard this on the radio one time, and it involves someone even more famous than Whitney Houston. So Hmm. according to what I recall, and hopefully I'm not misremembering this, Elvis Presley approached Dolly Parton about that song. Wow. And probably his team, not him, Mm -hmm. but his team. And you can kind of see how that would fit with him. It, 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 he had hits like Love Me Tender and, yeah. uh, you know, different heartfelt love songs that it would, it would have suited him. And she was she was cool with the idea of having Elvis sing her song, except for one thing. Tell me. Elvis didn't, at that point in his career, didn't sing anything unless he also had the publishing rights. Mm. And that's, for the most part, an economic move because you make a lot more money off something if you've written it. Or if you're if you own, on record yeah. as writing it. And right. if you own the rights. The actual song, mm-hmm. like a, a performance. Whitney Houston can make a lot of money selling records or touring with that song. But every time it plays on the radio, Dolly Parton gets money. As she should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, radio is a different thing now. But in the 70s, when Elvis approached Dolly Parton, it would have been a big, big, big. So she said, no. She said, I'll write you another song, but that one's mine. Mm-hmm. And I, I won't sign it over to you. And in a way, I think... You know, it, it comes off as very heartfelt, and this is my Can song. Can I ask a question? Blah, blah, blah. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Let's see. The best little whorehouse in Texas was in the eighties. When was? I feel like that was late seventies. Okay, I, I'm trying to figure out if if he approached her after she had already uh, remade a different version of it for the movie, or if it was before the movie. Well, he died in seventy seven. So, so it seems like it's. Uh, and whorehouse in Texas was eighty two. Oh, never so, yeah, mind. Yeah, so definitely well after. So it sounds really sincere, right? Like this is my little song. Mm-hmm. You can see her saying it, and I want, I will write you. I song. think that. But I also yeah. watched a, a 2020 or something Barbara Walters interview with Dolly Parton earlier than that, and I heard her say like. There came a point in my career where I realized I wasn't making the money I should be making. And I had to be smarter about how I conducted my business mm-hmm. because people who 
in her mind, we're not contributing as much, we're making a lot more. And that could be an example of that, right? If he if he takes that song and gets the publishing rights, he's going to make bank and she's going to have nothing. Right, right. So, I mean, definitely she was looking out for herself. And, and you know, let's face it, I think she knew that that song was hot and she was not going <laughs> to give up the publishing rights to that song, you know? She seemed to know that, it's true, but I don't know. I, I, I guess, obviously, I'm not a musician, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I thought the original song was kind of weird. I like Dolly, but I didn't. I'm not crazy about the original. The original rendition take of that song. Like, what made it great was really Whitney's rendition. I mean, yeah, it's the same words. It's all the same, you know, music and everything. It's just it's a different arrangement. Correct. That's all. That's all it was. But I mean, it was her baby, and um, and I'm glad she she's you know made a lot of money then, and I'm sure she makes a lot of money still. But what I mean, it's so it's so crazy to have the crystal ball again, though. You hear her I say, I always felt like if it, if, if it could, you know, if it came into the hands of the right singer, that it could be really great. And she was absolutely 200 percent correct. It was really the biggest one of the biggest songs of the 90s, really. You know, that song hit so fast that it was I even remember hearing it in Japan. Yeah, like I can remember how popular it was there. And that like, unfortunately, like was, you know, because Whitney had a lot of problems. And I think that that it was hard for her to always see her blessings. So she saw it like, my God, that song was like almost like an albatross because she wanted to take a break from performing. And while you're still hot, you can't take a break. When people want to see you hmm. perform, people want you to do concerts. And I think that she felt even more pressure because of the su- success of that song. Or at least that I've gotten that notion when I've heard her in interviews that like, geez, you know, that really upped the ante, you know, 16 weeks wow. at number one. Goodness gracious. That's, you know, that's four you know, four months. But yeah, no. I mean, I think Dolly was sincere because she's on this show in 92. She's always sincere, but Mm -hmm. she's on the show in 92 to promote a movie that she did called Straight Talk, which I think I even went to the theater to see because I like Miss Dolly. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I never saw that movie. No, that would be more of a something I would do, but (laughs) (laughs) I like Dolly too. But she's on there to do that. And she sings I Will Always Love You, which has not been even 100% confirmed is going to be in the bodyguard. So this is a year in advance, March 92, that she chooses to use her time on Arsenio. I'm sure it's her idea. How would he know? Mm -hmm. You know, to sing this little old song that becomes a blockbuster in about a year. And it was it's, it's kind of like because we can look back, we know what happens next. It's kind of it's very endearing to hear her sing, sing it from her heart, sing it her way. Yes. And 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 you can appreciate when you have when somebody creates good music, creates good lyrics, anybody can run with it. You know, like a, a good a really good artist can take that and run with it. And it's still going to be great because the, the song is just great. It's just a good song, you know. And so you can appreciate her rendition, the tenderness she exudes when she sings mm-hmm. it vibrato thing in her voice that's just very signature Dolly and then you can compare it to what Whitney did and it's not like oh this is better and this is worse no it's just more like when something's great an artist can take it make it their own it's still going to be great like it doesn't matter you know she didn't have to sing those high notes for her performance to be good you know because it's just a good 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 piece of music she didn't have to hold she didn't have to hold the notes like Whitney did either no she just has a unique like when you you know it's Dolly when you turn on the, the you know radio in or radio whatever and you hear you you know it's dolly there's dolly you know she just has that sweet signature sound 
and uh, and she's a really talented songwriter. I was surprised by how young she looked. Yeah, she's beautiful. I, I always thought she was beautiful. I think I'm just so used to seeing her now. Mm-hmm. And now she's, you know, she's been very open about the fact that she's kept up her face and her body yeah. with plastic surgery. So she doesn't necessarily look old now. But I was surprised in seeing this that just her movements and her presence, I could tell, was a lot younger, which obviously she was. I'm not trying to... Right. You know, make She's a probably cast what, in her just early 40s during the time of that interview or a little bit younger. That seems about right. Yeah, I love the I love what I've heard both in interviews and in this interview about her husband. I love that, that they have just this nice understanding. He's not into show business. He, he's not interested in showing up on the red carpet. You know, he supports her. He loves her. But I just want to be like in the shadows and I don't need to be, you know, around it all. And I, I love how they've made that work. They're still together today. I've never even seen him. Have you? No, and I, I, but I think he, she said that he don't he only came out with her once and then that was the end of it. And they and for all I know, he doesn't even exist, except he does for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like he doesn't want to be part of it. And I, I compl- he said she said, you know, he's just a normal country guy. He just he's quiet. He doesn't want to be part of the this whole mess and and she's to her credit she was able to respect that and not like force it on him you know yeah no that would be a bad right and hey just enjoy the riches and you know your lovely beautiful wife and you know you can go about you know go about your life quietly that's fine and it's interesting too that uh that she never had kids I also thought that was an interesting Yeah, thing. that is interesting. I never really thought of it. But she's so busy, maybe. Yeah, she's so busy creating. She, you know. So, yeah. So, it was it was good to see her. And I love the, the performance. Can't think of too much else that, oh, well, it was cute. The little back and forth banter about the... Uh, about Arsenio and and wearing you know him wearing Christina yeah is it Yamaguchi Yamaguchi's gold it was a gold medal or bronze medal I don't know but that he got some flack at the time oh, about yeah. that huh for wearing somebody's Olympic medal which is kind of silly that does seem silly and so she she gave him her her medal that that he could wear because of the the success of one of her albums so that was cute yep she just seems like a really like down to earth caring woman. Like it's not about Hollywood or anything. She's just acting, you know, like a decent, you know, like you don't, you don't, you don't get any sense that what you see is any different from what she's like at home. No, that seems impossible. Right. If she were different, I would be shocked. Yeah. Like she just seems like, Hey, I'm just a normal person. I just happen to be a talented songwriter and I'm famous, but I'm really just the normal, you know, person, which I appreciate it that she's like that. Although she's complicated, right? Because if you saw her in Market Basket or the dollar store, you would notice her. She's not a normal person. Like. <laughs> the hair itself would be like, and the heels. I'd be like, Dolly, what you doing in here, girl? <laughs> what you getting ready to buy? <laughs> I don't think there's any place anywhere in the world where she wouldn't stand out. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's... um. She's an amazing icon. Do you know that she, that the nine to five song got nominated for an Academy Award? Working nine no. to five. I love yeah. that song. I love that movie. I didn't, it was, I, I don't believe she won for that, but she was nominated for an Oscar for, I guess, is it best original Would score? Would you get an Oscar for a song? Oh I yeah, you so. can. Eminem got an Oscar for oh. um, Lose Yourself from his movie. Well, if that's the case, then that's totally deserving. Oh yeah. No, no. Yeah. They, they, they nominate for best song and 
some a lot of the time the artists will will have the privilege of getting it because if they wrote the song like which was Eminem's case you know that uh, sound of somebody that song includes the sound of somebody typing lose yourself and when no oh. nine to five oh, nine to five <laughs> oh no I never noticed that okay Working yeah because it's about secretaries right mm-hmm. if you listen again you'll hear it oh that's and she has always said that when she wrote the song she made that sound by wrapping her long fingernails on the guitar oh wow see so what even for her to think about that that's what i'm saying genius i know genius hello she's an american treasure she is indeed and one day i'll go to dollywood yeah i'll go with you i know that could be a fun trip <laughs> I'm sure it's a good park. I mean, it can't be bad, right? I mean, it's... No, it would not be bad. It has to be a I pretty good park. I don't always uh, blend real well in the South, but we could try. <laughs> <laughs> we, we'll, we'll make it happen. Once upon a time. So in the past, we've talked about um, your mom visiting us at BC. And I didn't want people to think that maybe we were poking fun at your mom and not my mom. (laughs) And it's really not about poking fun, right? They were just, they happened to be involved in some humorous uh, episodes in our college life. But um, I wanted to make sure my mom got, you know, some billing as well. (laughs) And I thought of an instance where she led on to me that she might be a good fan for our podcast. She doesn't know about it yet, but I think she might be interested in it. Awesome. So what happened was my mom visited solo in our senior year. And I think that she probably visited then because we had better digs. Like we were in Vute and yeah. you could actually like come in and sit down. You didn't have to be on somebody's bed, basically. You're right. I don't really recall them coming around too often when we were in Loyola and we were in Williams and Loyola, right? Right. And that was I spent kind of, a lot of time at Welch. places were a pain in the butt because the room was small. The parking was real bad. So you had a like a, a hike and a parking challenge to get to those dorms. Yeah. And Williams was on a hill or something, right? Yeah. Bad, bad. So my mom picked up on the fact that, you know, by senior year, we're right on Com Ave. You could easy breezy pull into the, you know, parking lot that it was small, but at least you could probably get a spot. And on this occasion, she came in the afternoon, early afternoon, I remember, and she brought lunch. And what she brought was homemade macaroni and cheese. Mm. So she knows that I like macaroni and cheese. And Natalie liked macaroni and cheese. Yeah, this would be a pretty... (laughs) pretty easy way to please a bunch of college kids right and she found a recipe that was like crazy town it was like five different kinds of gourmet cheese not it wasn't craft macaroni and cheese it was like super macaroni and cheese so my mom comes in with the mac and cheese and a guy was there i don't know if you remember i'll say his actual name because he doesn't there's nothing in this story that would embarrass him but my friend rich who had red hair yeah he was he was around a lot senior year because we had two classes together and we were both applying to go to Japan. So we had a lot in common, a lot to discuss. And he was happened to be there when she came. So, of course, we offered him some mac and cheese and he had some and we had some. I, I think you were there, but this was in on a weekday in the middle of the day. So it was kind of an odd time. Yeah, it would have been odd for sure. And I'm surprised she would have chosen that day to come up. Do you remember why she did? I think that my mom likes to drive when there's not a lot of traffic. And so a weekday middle of the day is good. I can relate to that. Yeah. I don't like a lot of hustle and bustle. Exactly. 
So we enjoyed this mac and cheese. And I remember thinking like, this is amazing mac and cheese, but <laughs> I think one serving is all I need. And I don't think my roommates are going to be able to have more than one serving because it is so rich. And I feel like I'm going to be in a food coma. (laughs) (laughs) We have a tremendous amount of it. And I don't know how we're going to make it go. Like (laughs) four young girls are not going to tuck into this. So (laughs) Rich was there. And I remember that he either asked for or I offered him seconds because I was like, let's try to move this, you know. <laughs> and but then you I underestimate just, us because I'm thinking I could definitely throw down on some mac and cheese. But anyway, well, perhaps. But even in our like elementary um, understanding of nutrition, I think we all would have known that this was like easy death. four thousand calories, right? Right. It was death. So we <laughs> we took up we ate our share and then we 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 yeah we moved on. But Rich was a good uh, guinea pig in this story because. He ate all the time. I knew this about him. He was kind of a chow hound. And so I just remember that either he asked for seconds or I offered him seconds. And the look on his face that he was going to get more of this outrageous mac and cheese was so memorable. It was like manna had fallen from heaven that he was going to get seconds. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we didn't eat very well on campus. You know, like our food was, I mean, I didn't complain at the time. I didn't care. But our food wasn't all that. I mean, I remember eating a lot of pita sandwiches with tuna. Right. Yeah. No, we didn't have five cheese gourmet no. mac and cheese. And when we did, everybody would complain, oh, the chickens and all that. I mean, it right. was, I thought it was decent food, but I, I remember decent. a lot of complaining. But I just remember thinking, like, this is a perfect match because Rich wants this so badly. And my mom probably wants to know that she hit a home run with this recipe she found, you know. And, <laughs> and who better than Rich? So that was the you know, part one of the story was just kind of a cute memory. And then um, my mom and I were going to go shopping, something you do if you get a visitor who has a car, you know. And you it's know. mom. so Right. You know. And there were two malls around BC. I don't know if you remember. One was very, very posh. Yes. And I do remember like the Chestnut Hill Mall. Was yes, it? that's the one. Yeah. That mall had, harking back to a prior story, a Benetton in it. Right. Ooh. And we've already established that you know, my family was not about shopping at Benetton. So um, we were going to go to the other mall, which you might not have ever saw. Only The only reason I knew about it is that we had a roommate who was from the area and she showed me there was this like funky little shortcut to get to another mall that was more mainstream. Maybe folks who had not extreme wealth could shop at this mall. Like a typical, like a Warwick mall, you know, Filene's, Jordan Marsh. So... I had taken my mom there before. And so on this occasion, she said, all right, let's go to that mall that, you know, not the fancy one, but the, the other one. What's it called? And she said, is it the Arsenio Hall Mall? <laughs> and I remember laughing because the name of that mall was the Arsenal Mall. Oh, that's funny. And hey, I, close. <laughs> I, right. I don't think she thought it was called the Arsenio Hall Mall, but... That was she, what was in her head for that kind of sound. She know? knew it kind of. So- <laughs> she knew it kind of sounded like that. That's why she yeah. said, "What the? You know, that's funny." <laughs> there you go, an Arsenio Hall moment. I know, and we, we had fun at the Arsenal Mall, which is no longer there. I checked it out. A lot of malls have gone out of business now. Is the Chestnut Hill Mall there? I think so, because that was a different kind of mall. Like that was for adults, not for mall rat kids like me. 
Yeah, I wouldn't. I was just so wrapped up in my own little world. I was ignorant as as all get out that I wouldn't have even thought about checking out any stores or anything. And I never had any money. So no, and you needed uh, a car. We didn't have cars. Yeah, so. those were the days. Yeah, mac and cheese, huh? And and I I'm sure I was very happy. Did I eat? Yeah. Did I eat well? Because I'm sure I would have. I love mac and cheese. My mom made a lot of people happy that day. She that was you know you know like I said, Bill Clinton had his whole appearance perfectly coordinated to appeal to the young audience. My mom had that recipe perfectly coordinated for her audience of hungry, desperate kids who didn't get a lot of but didn't home have cooking. any good food. <laughs> no, no, well, home nobody cooking. cooked. Like we weren't mature enough to like. Say, like, let's go get some salad and pasta and we can no. cook. Like, we just weren't mature enough to do that. Like, no. we were, you we, know, we were about most, going to... We made a hamburger. And we didn't have cookbooks or the internet. So it would not right. have been easy to have recipes. Right. Now you can YouTube anything. Right. You know, now that Thanks you said for... mac and cheese, I'm hungry. Well, I don't want to have a long, sad goodbye for our podcast. We've already been nostalgic and talked about the end of the world as we know it. But um, I just want to say it's been a pleasure. I'm so glad we did this. Me too, Jamie. It was hard. It was challenging at times, given our schedules, but we got it done. Mm-hmm. And it, and I learned a lot. Like I learned a lot about myself, <laughs> which my memory, I, apparently I don't have a good memory for certain things. And I, I don't know why. That's right. Such as phone bills. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I learned so much. Honestly, I learned a lot about like and, and perspectives that I hadn't considered before, like about things that happened to us, people around us and things that I had missed as a, as a young woman that I see now that I have a better comprehension of, of, of things now as an older woman. And so it's been like I learned about about myself and I learned about the the Arsenio Hall experience and you know how he interacted with his guests and really what a talented host he was because I really didn't get that as much back in the day I just thought he was cool and funny right. but now I understand he was really really good at what he did you know mm-hmm. so there's a lot of things that I learned learned about myself learned and about dare him. I say if we listen to this in 20 years we'll find places that we hadn't learned enough yet. In other words, we'll hear ourselves talk and say, wow, I thought that then, but that really wasn't the story. Absolutely, We're constantly evolving, or at least we should be. Yeah, if, if, if we're the on the right track, we should always be evolving intellectually and spiritually and all, all that good stuff. Well, like I said, no long goodbyes, just onward. And uh, maybe we'll do this again sometime. But for now, we hope everybody's enjoyed and um, continue to support Arsenio. Agreed. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Natalie. All right. So in the past, we've had a a mention of our Twitter account, which is at Podsenio, which I think is a pretty clever name, if I do say so myself. (laughs) And what we do there is we've posted some graphics, one for each, one or more for each um, podcast about the guests or some things that were said. And we're hoping that you visit that and uh, retweet those uh, graphics and a couple reasons we want to do that first reason we'd like to know if you're listening we have some stats and we know we've got (laughs) listeners in places like zimbabwe and poland and all kinds of cool places and if you'd like to just show us that you're listening it'd be great to see some retweets on there and you know i don't know how you feel natalie but i'm thinking that if we get evidence that some folks are listening i might be able to talk you into doing a second season (laughs) <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I know that would motivate me as a podcast listener. I always, if I find one I like, I always want more. So, yeah, absolutely. That's one reason. Let's keep it coming. Zimbabwe. I never. 
that wouldn't have crossed my mind that somebody in Zimbabwe I know. would be listening. Thank you, listener. I know. Too bad it's not Zamunda, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Coming to America? <laughs> but the other reason is a non-selfish reason. Uh, we think that Arsenio could be uh, in the running to replace Ellen. And not too long yeah. ago, there was a hashtag going around. Hashtag replacements for Ellen. So if you have enjoyed our podcast, if you feel like Arsenio deserves that chance, we're going to encourage you to retweet with that hashtag replacements for Ellen. Uh, you might even tweet at the Ellen show or at Arsenio uh, just to let them know what's what you're trying to do. And we would feel like we really accomplished something if you did that. That would be so awesome. And never mind, if our if our senior listens to us, I think like that would be it. Like, forget it. Like, you know, that would be almost like a little mini right. come true. <laughs> it would. So help two girls out, will you? I mean, we don't ask much. We put a lot of love and care. Into this. <laughs> <laughs> we found the recording of the Green Line train on freesound.org. Thank you to Craig Hagen. Woo!